everyone. Welcome back to the online ministry of Grace Baptist Church. Uh, with the Labor Day weekend, summer is unfortunately drawing to a close. And similarly with today's message, our series on how Jacob became Israel has also come to an end. Uh, if you're just joining us, I'd encourage you to check out the other messages in this series and take a moment to drop us a line in the comments below to let you know, let us know that you were here. Now, our society celebrates winners, doesn't it? There are books and movies about the people who created the iPhone, Facebook, Big Macs. <laughs> we give a lot of attention and praise to successes. But do you ever wonder where the failures end up? There's actually a facility in Ann Arbor, Michigan that's known as the Museum of Failed Products. It, it looks like a supermarket, except there's only one of each product on the shelves. And it's filled with row after row of marketing disasters. Like Clairol's A Touch of Yogurt Shampoo or Pepsi's Breakfast Cola. You can find fortune cookies that were marketed for dogs called fortune snookies, as well as self-heating soup cans, which tended to explode in customers' faces. One of my favorite fails is a product called Gerber Singles. Those were baby food jars of pureed food aimed at seniors and college students with such flavors as beef burgundy and sweet and sour pork. I'm not sure why nobody saw that one coming. Now, as I think about this museum, it makes me think about how we, feed, how we treat failure in our culture. I think there's some, something inside us that fears will end up shelved in a museum for rejects if we're just not successful enough. Those fears can affect our professional lives, our relationships, but also our spiritual lives and how we perceive God and his view of us. When we left off Jacob in Genesis 34 last week, he was reeling from a moral and spiritual failure. He'd been unprepared for the dangers he and his family would face back in Canaan. And when a crisis hit, he didn't, he didn't step up to show leadership. And his sons ended up acting instead in a series of events that included deception, theft, and murder. In the aftermath, Jacob is likely feeling his inadequacy as a father, his guilt over what took place, and the fear of reprisal from the surrounding people. What do you do after a failure like that? How do you cope with what you're feeling? And what hope is there for your future? Today's passage gives us some of the answers to those questions. If you don't have a Bible handy, I'd encourage you to pause the video at this point and turn with me to Genesis 35. I'll read from verses 1 to 15. Genesis 35, 1 to 15. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, 
so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he had fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alon Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called him his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. And I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. This is the word of God. I took some time to describe what immediately preceded this passage. So you would feel the impact of how surprising God's words in verse 1 must have felt to Jacob. He's still reeling from a genocide that he's essentially presided over. And the feelings of shame and despair must have been overwhelming. God would be the only one who could break into his sense of hopelessness. But why would he? It was God he had failed as much as anyone. It was God he had disappointed. It was God's will that he had disregarded. And yet in verse 1, the invitation comes nonetheless. Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Bethel meant house of God. Bethel was a place where God had met Jacob. Bethel was a place where God blessed him. And only a God of incredible grace would give any thought to a person who had failed him like Jacob just had. But God's in inviting Jacob to come to him. And Jacob knows he doesn't deserve God's kindness or concern. Notice what God asks Jacob to do, though. He says, Make an altar, altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. God could have referred to himself in any number of ways. He could have said, make an altar there to the almighty God or to the faithful God or to the God you wrestled with. But instead he says, make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Why would he mention that? As Jacob heard those words, he would think back to how he felt at that time. That was when he had just deceived his father and cheated his brother Esau to the blessing. And Esau had vowed to kill him and set Jacob on the run. That was a time when he felt the shame of his sin, as well as fear for his life. It was the other moment in his life when he felt the pain of moral and spiritual failure. And amazingly, God met him there. God blessed him and encouraged him with promises of insurance. And it was a turning point for him. Now at another point of great failure in his life, God appears to him and says, go make an altar to that God. 
the one who picked you up last time you fell down. Turn to the one who cared for you when you were at your worst. Worship the God whose grace overcomes your past. Now, building an altar like that would make an interesting impact. For hundreds of years, travelers would stop at Bethel and see the altar, and they would ask the history of its establishment. They would hear that a man named Jacob had built it, and naturally, they would ask why. Was it to express thanks for a great victory in battle? Was it to show appreciation for God's help in overcoming some great obstacle? No. They would learn that it was built by a man who had experienced the love and acceptance of God when he was at his worst. They'd be told that it was established by a person whom God blessed when he deserved it the least. And they would hear of a God whose grace overcomes our past. And what you learn is that this is how God wants to be remembered. Is that how you remember him? Is that how you remember him in your failures? Is that how you think of him in your valleys? When you feel the shame of your sin and the regret of decisions you've made, do you hear the invitation to the house of God? Do you believe that God calls to you in love? Do you believe that God's grace can overcome your past? If you're feeling the power of that kind of love and acceptance, you might wonder how you respond to it. You might wonder how Jacob resp responded to it. Some might think probably made him soft. What he really needs is some tough love, you figure. Well, let's see how this gracious invitation impacted him. In verse 2, the man who was passive toward his role as a father in chapter 34 is now stirring up his entire household in spiritual revival. In verse 2, he calls them to put away your, their foreign gods. In verse 4, he, he has them gather the rings that were in their ears, probably with religious uh, uh, symbols and identifications. And he buries them under a tree near Shechem. By burying them, he was declaring them dead and worthless. He was showing them to be corrupt. He didn't carry them to market or try and list them on Kijiji to see how much he could get for them. He saw them as evil and defiled, and he didn't want anyone else to be influenced by them. Obviously, he knew about these idols before, right? Rachel had stolen her father Laban's gods when she had ran from him. She'd heard about Jacob's God, but she wanted a little extra assurance. She was hedging her bets. And while the family was in Shechem, they probably bought earrings with religious symbols and markings. Again, Jacob had known about all this, but he didn't care enough to address it. it. Didn't matter enough to him to confront it. But God's grace motivates us to bury our false loves. God is jealous, a holy jealousy. He's not interested in people who just want to flirt with him, but have someone else on the side. But when you experience the grace of God, it motivates you to let go and bury those things that stand between you and him. God's grace also motivates us to approach God with the reverence that he deserves. In, in verse 2, he tells his family to purify yourselves and change your garments. This probably meant that they would wash thoroughly, symbolically cleaning the shame and corruption from their bodies. And with a change of clothes, 
they would present in their appearance what they hoped to be in their actions. Now, if I went through some of your cupboards, I bet for most of you, I could probably find a piece of clothing that represents your old life, right? You know the t-shirt that's kind of stained and misshapen? Or the outfit that everyone but you agrees is ugly and out of style? It should have gone to Value Village a long time ago. And you'd get rid of it, except it's just so comfortable. <laughs> and besides, there's all that history and all those memories. How could you part with it now, right? You might not do that for your spouse, but God's grace motivates us to do that for him. You probably know the verse from Ephesians 4.22, where Paul compares our old character and habits to clothing that we need to take off. He says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Then he says in verse 24, put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. If you've truly experienced God's grace, it should move you to put away the things that displease God and act in a way that'll honor him and reflect how good he is. And listen to how Jacob speaks about God. By this point, he has a dozen children and many more workers under him, and he gathers them together. And in verse 3, he announces, Let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. He's saying, I've got to make an altar because every time I think I'm out of answers, God's been there for me. Whenever I felt helpless and alone, God's been by my side. I've been tossed and turned, sometimes up, sometimes down, but God's been the constant in my life. He's never deserted me, never let me down. What I want you to see is that this is what the grace of God does in a person's life. Without it, people don't turn from their idols and false loves. They might commit themselves to a few rules or add a bit of religion to their lives, but there'll, there'll be no deep repentance like this. After what Jacob and his family had gone through, they likely would have avoided God altogether. The feelings of shame and guilt would have kept them from him. But God's grace moves us to change. It doesn't just overcome our past, it motivates our present. But what kind of a future does a guy like Jacob have? Someone who's sinned the way he has, they might be forgiven, but surely he's disqualified. And he's also a marked man. He's from an immigrant family trying to settle down in the land, but after the massacre at Shechem, his reputation, reputation's shot. People will be out for revenge. Can God's grace do anything for his future? To start with, what we see in verse 5 is how God's gracious presence in, in, in his life changes things. In the last chapter, Jacob was afraid of the people in the cities around him. But in verse 5, it says, And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Can you imagine the kind of courage that would have given him? When you see God's protection like that, it changes how you look at your future. 
It helps you see that you're no longer a prisoner of your past. God can set your life on a new trajectory. Then in verse 9, God blesses him. And in verse 10, he says, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be, be Jacob, but Israel shall be called your name. If you've been with us throughout this series, you might be thinking, God already blessed him. And in fact, God already renamed him Israel. Why is he repeating that now? Well, the first time that God blessed Jacob and named him Israel, it was at the high point of his faith. He struggled with God for blessing, refused to let go of him until he laid hold of it. Renaming Jacob and blessing him after a spiritual victory like that seemed right and appropriate. But after what happened at Shechem, Jacob had to be wondering whether God still had a future for him. Maybe he'd been demoted from Israel back to Jacob again. Instead, deliberately now in the heels of spiritual defeat, God reaffirms his blessing of Jacob, and he reaffirms his identity as Israel. Having entered into a relationship with God by faith, God wasn't going to let him go. His plans and purposes for him were secure. And the mess at Shechem just showed that God wasn't done with Jacob yet. He had a long way to go, but God wasn't giving up. And so finally, in verses 11 and 12, God commissions him. He commands him, first of all, to be fruitful and multiply. It's a repetition of the command to Adam. It's a little strange to say that to someone with at least 12 kids. You're expecting him to say, hey, you've got to slow, slow things down a little bit. Come on. But God's original promise to Jacob was that he would have offspring like the dust of the earth. And so God's urging here was a reaffirmation of God's purposes for him. Then he promises that a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. And finally, in verse 12, the land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you and I will give the land to your offspring after you. God's grace can take a person who should have been disqualified and give him a future. When we fail God ourselves or the people we love, it can feel like our plans just come to an end. It's hard to see a future anymore. But God's grace transforms our future. It inspires our future. That's not just true of Jacob. It's been the testimony of countless people throughout history. Like Chuck Colson, one of the men in Nixon's inner circle, was convicted in the Watergate scandal. Today, he's more known for Prison Fellowship International than he is for his role in Watergate. In reflecting on his life, he said this, The great paradox of my life is that every time I walk into a prison and see the faces of men or women who have been transformed by the power of the living God, I realize that the thing that God has chosen to use in my life is none of the successes, achievements, degrees, awards, honors, or cases I won before the Supreme Court. That's not what God's using in my life. What God is using in my life is to, to touch the lives of literally thousands of other people is the fact that I was a convict and I went to prison. That was my great defeat, the only thing in my life 
I didn't succeed in. He shows us that the defeats in our lives don't have to be final. But if he were still alive today, he would be quick to point out that defeats aren't automatically assets either. What made the difference in his life is the same as Jacob's, an experience of the grace of God. Now, maybe there's someone listening to this message who has tried morality. You've tried religion. You've done ritual, maybe even spirituality. But you haven't received the grace of God that turned Jacob into Israel. That grace is in Jesus Christ. God has already taken the initiative in your life in sending Jesus to die on the cross for your sins. You respond to that grace like Jacob did, by bearing your false loves and putting your trust in him alone. Do that today. But maybe there are many of you who have received that grace of God, but it's grown dull in your life. If you're honest, your motivation comes more from wanting to protect a certain image or maintain a certain tradition or track record for yourself. Come back to Bethel. Hear God's invitation to the house of God. God doesn't want us to build altars for worship anymore, but he does want us to give our lives as an offering. He wants, a, he wants a, our minds renewed by his word. He wants our lives transformed by gr his grace. He wants us to bury our false loves. And the problem is that we often return to the graves with fresh flowers. We dig up our idols and hold them. <laughs> The power to leave those idols in the grave comes from God's grace. Offer your life in singular devotion to God. And as you do, remember who God told Jacob the altar is for. He said, bring your offering to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So remember God like that often. Remember how God called you as a sinner. Remember how he forgave you when you fell. Think about how he ministered to you when you didn't deserve it. Because that's how God wants to be remembered. That's how he deserves to be remembered. God wants to be remembered as the one who comes to us in our times of greatest defeat. He's the one who reveals himself to us in our valleys. Because it's only his grace that can lead us out of them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Often we remember you in, in so many different ways. But you want to be remembered as the one who meets us in our valleys. You're the God whose grace alone can overcome our past. And so I pray, Father, for every, anyone here listening who is feeling the the pain and the frustration and the regret and the shame of moral and spiritual failure. May they hear in the pages of scripture your invitation. May they turn and bury their false loves and give themselves to you in faith. And help each of us, Father, to walk in your ways and to glorify you to respond to the grace of God and allow it to inspire our paths and 
the ways that you would lead us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I hope this message has shown you how God's grace can overcome your past, motivate your present, and inspire your future. But if it's raised questions or if there are ways that I can help you make spiritual decisions to move forward, send me an email or leave a comment below. If there's someone in your life that would be encouraged by the grace that turned Jacob into Israel, then share this link with them. And as always, for more messages of hope, visit www.gracebc.ca. God bless and see you next time.